This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's show. It's a bit of a health special as we look at physical and mental aspects, including a story of survival with breast cancer survivor Mary Patton and her doctor, Dr. Veronica Grassi as we discuss the importance of self-awareness, of treatment plans, of attitude and community. Is obesity disease? We were asking Rose O'Donovan, female health PT and breathing expert. Plus, is there a link between being overweight, snoring and disordered breathing? And we're keeping your ego in check with clinical psychologist Dr. Thiraya. What is an ego and when can it get problematic or should you never fight it? We're finding out next. So honoured to have not one but two superstars in the studio today. We are, of course, continuing our conversations around breast cancer awareness and having something of an open clinic today. So if you've got any questions, text lines are open. You don't need to put your name on if you'd rather not. Um, joining us is consultant, oncoplastic and reconstructive breast surgeon, Dr. Veronica. She's practised in the NHS and the private sector, 15 years of experience, over 5,000 operations performed, and she's now there at MediClinic City Hospital. And her patient or former patient, uh, we've got Mary Patton with us to share her story of survival. The text lines are open. Dr. Veronica is on hand, of course, to help with any questions that you might have about detection, surgery, treatment options and more. But Mary, I'd love to start with you. It's strange because we know each other. Hi, Helen. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) But I actually don't know that much about your story and where it began. And I think it's so valuable to, of course, have amazing experts like Dr. Veronica in the studio. And, you know, we can talk about data and we can talk about numbers and survival rates and stages and, and, and all of that. But I think it's so much more impactful to hear from people who have, have been through it, who have been on, you know, the front lines and the chemo chair and, you know, surgeries and more. So would you mind telling us about kind of where and when your story starts? Yes, of course. Um, well, thank you for You're inviting welcome. me on. Um, so in uh, 2021, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, I had gone for a routine appointment with my GP for something completely unrelated and had thought, actually, I just whilst I'm here, I'll just ask you to check something for me. That's what we do as women. We save up the symptoms. We do. We do. Um, And she later told me, my GP told me that she knew immediately that it was breast cancer. And um, obviously, we're so lucky in this country with the private health care. So the very next day, I was... um, at Parkview Mediclinic having a mammogram and ultrasound and it was then that I was told that I had breast cancer. And would you mind sharing kind of what stage you were at and and what kind of diagnosis you were given from the outset Mary? So I think with stages I think I'd I'd say it's stage two Um, the cancer had we didn't know at this stage but the cancer had spread into my lymph nodes so um when I initially was, was told about the treatment, that the treatment plan was for me to have chemotherapy first and then surgery and then radiotherapy. And it wasn't until um, a, a few chemo sessions in that um, we, I, we did a, a biopsy-led MRI scan to see how far the cancer had spread within the tissue of the breast. Mm-hmm. And it was then decided that the breast couldn't be saved. So a mastectomy was the, was the best option. As I said, you are a patient of Dr. Veronica. I think it's so wonderful to kind of keep these conversations going. When, as we've addressed on the show over the last few weeks, 
it's incredibly emotionally complicated. You know, you get that all clear. But these, you know, the scanxiety, the fear of recurrence, the survivor's guilt, you know, there's so many complex issues that still go into play. And I know Absolutely. that you guys, you know, still work really closely together, you know, obviously raising awareness, but, but also on a kind of a personal level as well. Absolutely. Um, how can I ask you before we bring in Dr. Vonka, uh, how did you come to find her and, and why did you choose her? Oh, gosh, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I did find her. Um, I actually um, heard about Dr. Veronica um, because she had spent many, many years in the NHS. And I know that the like you, the numbers that you just mentioned of the surgeries that she's done, I know that she would have done lots and lots and lots of surgeries. So her experience would have been amazing. Mm-hmm. Then when I met her, I think it's important as well for anybody that might be beginning this journey is that you have to also... Um, trust, but also get along with your with your with your surgeon, with your oncologist, um, and really feel that they um, understand you. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Veronica and I always got on very well. Yes, it was a very dark time and it was a very serious time, but um, she, she always explained things very very well. Um, and with that, put my mind at rest. I think that's a really important thing to to raise. And Dr. Veronica, I know this is something you're really passionate about. Is people understanding what they're dealing with and and they're not necessarily of course you're the one with decades of experience but that not being a power imbalance in terms of withholding information or not sharing absolutely tell us a little bit about why you wanted to work in this field in particular if you don't mind this uh, so it goes back since i was uh, uh, in in italy in my training actually where i had the chance to work with uh, professor veronese who is uh, uh, one of the most famous surgeon breast surgeons um for the past 20, 30 years, uh, he's the one who actually promoted breast conserving surgery. Because you have to know, actually, when a cancer diagnosis uh, was given to a patient uh, up to, you know, 50, ni- the 1970s, every patient was having mastectomy, uh, removal of the skin, uh, removal of the muscle, removal of the lymph nodes, because uh, it was thought that there are actually breast cancer was a, a local disease. So by removing everything, cancer was gone. Mm-hmm. But actually, uh, in the 1970s, they realized that that was not the case. So even doing a simple mastectomy and uh, utilizing other treatments such as radiotherapy or chemotherapy, the overall survival of the patients were absolutely fine. And then it came uh, actually the breast conserving surgery with Professor Vernese and again Fisher from US. And they've seen that uh, offering patients uh, a less radical surgery uh, was beneficial for the patients. And again, no change in overall survival. Um, over the years, of course, uh, this concept change a little because, of course, uh, even with breast conserving surgery, patient had actually um, not very good cosmetic outcome because we we tend to remove uh, a quarter of the breast without reshaping. But that's when the concept of uh, oncoplasty came in. And uh, that's uh, where I found my passion. I wasn't only a, a surgeon who removed the cancer, but could uh, restore the patient's body image and uh, um, the patient who who were in this situation of having, you know, surgery and breast cancer, they could uh, actually have a positive outcome uh, after that, actually. 
Joining us in studio this afternoon, Dr. Veronica Grassi, consultant on plastic and reconstructive breast surgeon. And we've got Mary Putnam in the studio as well, her patient, former patient, sharing her story um, and both on hand to help this afternoon. We've had messages about reconstruction options, about genetic testing and more. We are talking breast cancer awareness and um, and some of the, as Dr. Veronica says, some of the really positive advancements we've had in recent years. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Dr. Veronica Grassi with us today, consultant oncoplastic and reconstructive breast surgeon. She's been with the NHS and the private sector, decades of experience, thousands of operations performed. And we've got her patient, Mary Patton, in the studio sharing her story of survival. And I wanted to ask how you are today, Mary. How is your, how is your health? It's very good. Thank you, Helen. Other than being a, a usual tired mum, busy mum, but no, it's very good. It's very good. Um, I wanted to ask something on behalf of a lot of people listening today, which is how can we help, I guess, if someone has had a recent diagnosis or they're going through treatment, when you look back on the time, what role did family and friends and community have as part of that battle? Absolutely. And it's it's often actually a question that I'm asked. Um, people will message me to say, my friend has just been diagnosed. What can I do? I don't know what to say. Um, my advice would be the first time is to listen, listen to them, let them feel those emotions, let them be angry, let them be sad, let them cry. Um, and then also allow people to help you. So this was one of the biggest, uh, one of the hardest things that I had to get get through initially was everybody. There were so many people um, that, that asked to help me, wanted to help me. There was an outpouring of love from friends, from strangers, um, a community of pirate surf that I'm part of. And it was, it was just phenomenal. Um, but it's not, it's not human. It wasn't human nature to me to, to accept help. So, um, the, the getting help and, and accepting help, uh, and, if if someone has if you do have a friend or a family member that has been diagnosed offering tangible help so things like one thing that i still um have such dear memories of was that pirate surf created a spreadsheet called mary's meals um so it meant that um all the pirate parents put their put their name in the spreadsheet and it meant that every every day a home cooked meal was was brought to our home for for me and the kids mm-hmm. and it just meant that was that one other thing i just didn't have to think about at the end of the day uh, if i've had chemo um obviously as the weeks went on i had 18 weekly rounds of chemo so you begin to feel very very poorly um and you don't want to be thinking about what's for dinner. So that that was absolutely incredible. I think that's really interesting about kind of tangible and specific help rather than what can I do? You know, is it yes. a case of can I take the kids to school today or I'm dropping off a meal? Or, do, and it's does that also, make sense? It's, yes, it does. And it's also don't ask, just do. So because because human nature is, oh, no, no, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, I'm fine. Um so yes, absolutely. It's it's one of my friends who isn't here. Um, she lives in Singapore, and she sent me some silk pillowcases when I began to lose my hair. Um, I had other friends in the UK send me delivery vouchers, and all these things just add up. Um, flowers are great, but flowers need to be cared for and put in water. And um, you know, when you are feeling so sick, um, 
that, that they're not always the best yeah. best gifts in this but situation. You haven't got the headspace, the capacity or the time to yeah. be thinking about it. That's, thank, that's really, really lovely advice. If you want to ask Mary any questions about anything to do with that, you're more than welcome to reach out. We've had questions for you, Dr. Veronica, on the text line. Marjorie saying, hi all, um, my best friend is going to have a mastectomy soon. Can you explain the reconstruction options available after the surgery? And how do you decide what's best? Such a good question. Yes, so, of course, thank you for these questions. So, uh, first of all, I have to say that uh, there's no one size fits all. So, again, mastectomy could be done and reconstruction could, be, could happen during the same session or could be a delayed reconstruction. And, again, uh, it very much depends uh, on uh, uh, the size uh, of the breast of the type of cancer, because patient might need chemotherapy up front, uh, as in this case. But again, uh, it could happen also that, uh, uh, you know, patient might not feel to have reconstruction or she had predicted radiotherapy afterwards Mm -hmm. and therefore she might not choose to have it. Um, Or simply patient might decide not to have any form of reconstruction. And this is Good. This is uh, okay. So uh, options in terms of reconstruction, again, uh, immediate reconstruction, we have implant-based reconstruction, which is actually used most of the time, especially here in in UAE. Implant-based reconstruction uh, could use, uh, uh, we could use a fixed term, uh, fixed, sorry, uh, size uh, implant or a tissue expander. Again, it's uh, uh, a choice that, that uh, um, the patient has to discuss with their surgeon. Uh, if a patient wants to have uh, a larger breast, an expander might be considered. Um, whereas if a patient wants to remain the same size or wants to go smaller, a uh, fixed volume implant can be used. Again, the position of the expander or the implant could be prepectoral, so above the muscle, or under the muscle. Nowadays, uh, we tend to put the implant or the expander prepectoral because it's uh, the natural plane actually mm-hmm. of the breast and is less painful. Uh, there are other forms of reconstruction, uh, particularly uh, autologous reconstruction, which means reconstruction with uh, the patient's own tissues. Uh, usually, uh, the tissue is taken from the uh, tummy. Uh, is the so-called tummy tuck, but instead of discard actually the uh, the tissue, is reshaped in form of the breast and uh, uh, reconnected uh, uh, with uh, uh, artery and uh, uh, veins in the uh, cavity, uh, the thoracic cavity, or in the axillary. Gosh, it's just so lots uh, of uh, options available, and that's why it's important that you discuss with the mm-hmm. with the surgeons. I mean, I've, I consider myself to be, you know, pretty well informed when it comes to health, just by purely doing this show for a number of years mm. now. But I really feel like this year, and it's through experts such as yourself and obviously having friends who are going through breast cancer have been through it. I just feel like I've learned so, so much. And I'm sure you were the same there when you got your, Did you feel like you became an expert really quickly? I... I... I did and I didn't. I would, I'd never, in the, in the first, in the early stages, I'd never 
go to an appointment with Dr. Veronica alone because you can also be dazzled with, with medical terms and just what your options are. And because you're going through, you know, your a traumatic um, experience, um, I always took somebody with me to take notes, to ask questions. Um, but no, you, you do. And I, I think I'm... I'm almost two years um, to the day of my last chemotherapy session. And um, just in those two years, I've, I've continued to learn so much. It's a community that you never want to be part of. But once you are in it, actually, for me, I've gained, I feel like I've gained a lot more than what cancer took away. So, yeah. I'm going to cry. Okay. Um, Mary's joining us in the studio today, Dr. Veronica, her doctor. We have had messages about genetic testing. Um, Really great one from you, Rach, there. Um, We do hear about the importance of early detection, and I would love to hear from Dr. Veronica next about why that is just so crucial. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Joining us in the studio, and rightly so, continuing our conversations around breast cancer awareness, Dr. Veronica Grassi, consultant, oncoplastic and reconstructive breast surgeon. Um, and we've got her patient, Mary Patton, with us talking about her story of survival and just said, you know, almost two years to the day since that last, that last chemo treatment. And I wanted to ask you, Veronica, and I know this is very much your kind of bread and butter and you talk about this all the time, but we have had a number of messages on this topic. And unfortunately, it's been after the expert has left the studio. So you are here, and I wanted to put this to you. What do we know about risk factors, about causation, about why some women and men, we should say, get breast cancer? Yes, indeed. Uh, thank you for this question. So actually, breast cancer, as any other cancer, is due to a genetic mutation okay, that uh, causes an overgrowth of cells in breast cancer this, the mutation of the cells happens uh, in uh, the glandular tissue, which is formed by the lobules or the ducts. And how do we get this uh, genetic mutation? So there are factors that we cannot change, like being a woman. We know that uh, uh, women have higher chance to have breast cancer, uh, but men can also have breast cancer. In fact, uh, at least 1% of all breast cancer is in men. Uh, then we have uh, other factors uh, uh, such as the race. Uh, we know that, for instance, uh, black Americans have uh, uh, a higher risk of having a uh, uh, worse disease. Um, since I moved, uh, for instance, here in, uh, in UAE, I've noticed that uh, uh, younger patients compared back to UK have uh, uh, breast cancer below the age of 50. Uh, so the majority of my patients are in their 40s, actually. Oh, so young. And uh, uh, there is a, a, a particular type of cancer, which is the HER2 positive disease, which is slightly higher here than back in Europe. Uh, but there are also factors uh, that uh, uh, we can modify so, for instance, uh, that's why we always uh, uh, say, especially in this month, which is the Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we always say to the patient that they need to keep a healthy uh, lifestyle and uh, they need to keep their, their, their weight under control. Because, again, um, the majority of breast cancer uh, are, uh, due, are fed by 
hormones, estrogen and progesterone. And we know that hormones are stored in the fat. So uh, people with a high BMI are more prone to have breast cancer. Uh, so keeping the weight under control, uh, reducing uh, alcohol, uh, which can promote this genetic mutation, or uh, uh, actually doing exercise reduces the risk, for instance, of breast cancer up to 30-40%. That's why we recommend at least 30 minutes of exercise per day, even if it's difficult. But even, you know, do a, a go for a brisk walk could help. You know, sitting on the chair for four hours in a row will increase the risk of 18%. Wow, it's really significant. I want to come back to your um, point about genetic testing there because we had a question from Rach saying, uh, my aunt had breast cancer and um, should I consider genetic testing? How does it help in understanding the risk and treatment options? Okay, so um, if a aunt had breast cancer, what what we say actually is, uh, first of all, we need to see when the cancer presented, because we know that uh, one in eight women will have breast cancer, unfortunately. So uh, if uh, the cancer presented before the age of uh, uh, the physiologic menopause, which we say before the age of 50, uh, the risk is slightly raised. Mm-hmm. But usually we say that uh, uh, first degree relatives can increase the risk uh, of having breast cancer 20%. So the hunt is a second degree. We need to see the age. So unlikely that it's uh, a genetic mutation transmitted um, by the parents. Because as, as we were saying before, of course, there are genetic mutations like the BRCA1 and 2, like uh, the Angelina Jolie one, that can promote uh, this genetic mutation uh, that can predispose to breast cancer. And again, in those cases, patients can have 70, up to 70, 80% chance to develop breast cancer in their lifetime. So uh, it's, uh, but again, not all the patients undergoing the test uh, are positive, but this Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you won't be having the cancer. So that's why, again, we go back to the awareness checking the breasts uh, on a monthly basis and do the screening when you reach the age. If you have family history, particularly first-degree relative, you should seek the advice to your, of your doctor and probably you will be recommended with images beforehand. Dr. Veronica with us this afternoon. Um, Mary, I wanted to ask you, because it's great to see you in such good health and good spirits today. When you kind of reflect then on the last three or so years you know how do you how do you feel about what you've been through what's it taught you about you and maybe about humanity oh we're getting deep now we are we're getting deep (laughs) it's tuesday um what what we've had conversations before uh when when i was diagnosed with cancer i was a little bit lost um i had recently separated and um didn't kind of really know where i was going in the world and then boom cancer hit And so actually for my journey, uh, it gave me a focus and it gave me a a focus and a a purpose for the for the intensive months of treatment. And during those intensive months, uh, one thing that the the resounding thing that I learned about myself was actually my strength, that I I never knew that I had I had the strength and the self-belief 
Um, I'm, I'm a very pragmatic person by nature. So when I knew I was going to be okay and I was told this is the treatment plan, I was, right, okay, when do we start? Let's get going. Um, okay, week one's done. Okay, let's get on to week two. Week two's done and tick, tick, tick. Um, no, no one ever knows how they're going to react or how they're going to behave. And there, isn't, there is no right or wrong way that, that, that you can behave. I, I decided to have some fun and did some funny, silly reels and got the nurses dancing um, just to try and make light of the situation. But that was the way that I dealt with it. Um, lots of people remain, you know, want to have the treatment and then go home and you know, not talk about it. Um, but certainly for me, that one of the biggest things, the biggest thing that I learned throughout this journey is is my to believe in myself and to know that I can actually achieve anything if I put my mind to it. You're nodding along there, Dr. Franco, and you've you've watched this, <laughs> you've, you've watched this unfold with yes. Mary. Yes, definitely something that uh, you know. Still, I'm, you know, very touched about this. Uh, you know. Um, you know, it's something that's why I also like to do my job because I'm not only a surgeon, uh, you know, I have to be a little bit of a psychologist. I need to understand what the patient wants and uh, I have, I need to advise her to get the best out of uh, this difficult situation. So again, I always say to my patient, it's the beginning of a long journey, but we're in this together. We are a team. We, you know, we can improve your situation and uh, you will get out of it in the best possible mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. way. I guess that's my last question to you then, Dr. Monica. What kind of message of hope, encouragement would you have for people listening now or even those who might have had a diagnosis and are battling breast cancer and their families too? So my message, uh, I believe, is, uh, you know, if you've been diagnosed with breast cancer, um, just uh, take time to think what you want out of that. Don't rush uh, with a decision. Listen uh, to the possible option. Just uh, discuss with your surgeon or your oncologist and challenge the, them. Ask questions because, again, the treatment has to be tailored to your needs. There's no one treatment for everybody. If you haven't, uh, you know, been diagnosed or you have a friend or family history, because I believe everybody of us have been touched by breast cancer, just check your breast and mm. simply check in your breast with a physical examination on a monthly basis is something that anybody could do, anyone could do from the age of 20 onwards and uh, seek advice if there are any changes uh, in, your, in your breast. Take control. And I would also say as well, just to keep the conversation going. So yeah. we all know October is great because it brings awareness to breast cancer. But of course, breast cancer doesn't wait to, to arrive in October. Um, so one thing I would say is know your normal, know what your body looks like, not just your breast, but your body. 
that's one thing I didn't do. As a, well, many, many of us are busy mums. We don't take time for ourselves. So it's taking those few minutes every day or every month to really look at your body and know what your normal is. And then to continue the conversation, speak to your female relatives, speak to your friends and, and ask them and, and make it an open conversation, not a taboo subject. Because like we all know, the statistics show that if breast cancer is caught early, it is 100% treatable and curable. And, you know, that's... That's what I would. That's what I would also well, say. Both. Thank you so so much. Thank you, Helen. Um, Mary, thank you for your generosity of sharing your story and your wisdom. We've had some beautiful messages saying thank you so much for this conversation. I've had goosebumps. You know your strength and your weakest moments. So much love for Mary, and thank you for sharing your journey. And to Dr. Veronica, if it's okay with you, um, if people want to get in touch with me, say the word doctor on four zero zero one. Can I share your website so people can find you? Thank you so Amazing. much. Amazing. Yes. Thank you so so much, Mary and Dr. Veronica Grassi, speaking to us this afternoon. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. It's a bit of a health focus on the show today and bringing together, and I don't mind saying this openly on the radio, some of my favourite guests for your listening and educational pleasures. Rosa Donovan in the studio today. She is a female health PT and an Oxygen Advantage Master Instructor. This means she is passionate about health and breath. How are you, Rose? I'm very good, thank you so much. <laughs> it's great to have you with us. Um, we're having a special look at obesity on the show today. And interestingly, just in the last few days, scientists claim to have found a bit of a root cause for obesity for many people. Um, fructose, a new paper proposes, is the little devil that drives so many human metabolisms towards obesity. And it's not necessarily the biggest source of calorific intake, but apparently it does trigger the urge to eat fattier foods at higher quantities and overindulge. So a big analysis being done by medical doctor Richard Johnson at the University of Colorado suggests that a decision to lose weight might not come down to a choice between ditching either carbs or fats, but a case of, I guess, responsibly reducing both together. So we are busting some myths on the show today. And I wanted to start by asking you, do you believe that obesity is a disease? It is classified as a disease. Do you feel like yeah. there's myths and misconceptions around that? Hundreds. <laughs> there's a, there are a lot of myths um, around it and there is a lot of stigmatisation. And uh, the biggest one is eat less and move more. Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, it's a really emotional topic for an awful lot of people as well to be honest and I would I mm -hmm. would classify myself in that and I say that as someone who was you know in a bigger body for a, for a long long time and now I'm at a healthy BMI but I couldn't even bring myself to calculate it for a long time and really found very um, uncomfortable to talk to talk about it I think there's an awful lot of you know denial and body dysmorphia going on and I wondered you know as a, as a trainer you know do you work with many clients whose BMI would perhaps classify them as obese? I work with a lot of clients that are in the overweight uh, category of BMI and then in the severe, and we have now taken the word morbid out of that classification. It's been done away with. I didn't which realize is nice. that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing people, listeners need to know that um, a person is not an obese person. They live with obesity the same way you live with cancer because you're not a cancer. You're a person that has cancer. So a lot of this has changed internationally and, and the kind of speak clinically that we use mm -hmm. uh, towards it. So, um, yes, I do work with a lot of overweight and obese clients. So how do you then kind of tailor your approach when it comes to training? Um, because I think it's really important to acknowledge 
and I say this again from personal experience, it takes an awful lot of courage to pick up the phone to a trainer, to someone who works in the sports field and say, I want to make a change. And to have someone who understands perhaps some of the unique challenges, both emotional and physical, of someone, as you say, who is obese, um, is, is, is really important to state. So how, how do you work with someone in that, in that sense? It is a person-first um, approach, and that means that you speak to the person-first approach, and it's a whole systems approach I use, and that's what we've learned. Um, I guess I'm working with this for over 16 years. When I worked in Ireland, um, I'll never forget the experience I have that I had working with my first two obese clients. My boss at the time, who owned the only personal training studio in the city, was not comfortable to work with them, and he was far more qualified than I was, and... Um, they both lost an incredible amount of weight under my care and one of them regained it back and more. And that was at the point when I went, OK, this is a really interesting uh, area to work in. And uh, it had a profound effect on me. I've also lived in a bigger body, so I fully understand what it's like to have to try and pick up the phone, to come into group classes, to mm -hmm. come and train in gyms um, and just the sheer... Um, horrible experience of living in a bo bigger body. Uh, nobody likes living in a bigger body. I think it's this gym anxiety thing is really real. Um, and, and thank you for, for saying that because I think I, I, I you know, meet a lot of amazing, very, very, very well qualified people who work in the industry and they've never, through no fault of their own, that they've never experienced the feeling of walking into a class and feeling or knowing that you are going to be the biggest, the slowest, the weakest and making yourself really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's really scary. It is. And it's a, a point I make when I also work in the education side of my uh, industry and I educate personal trainers. So the last course that I taught on internationally, um, there was only two people on the course out of 20 that had experienced overweight. So I said, let's do an experiment. And I got them all to get 10 kilo to 20 kilo weights or dumbbells or balls and actually carry it on their person for 20 minutes and describe the effect of what it was like to go up and down the stairs, to go to the bathroom, to get a bottle of water. And they started to describe the effect of how it felt in them. And I said, now remember that when you program for a person who was overweight and they were stunned. Mm -hmm. um, so we must, uh, it, it is a really frightening experience for someone to come in as the slowest or the biggest. Um, and trainers don't know it. And there is stigmatization. And this has been shown in multiple studies, especially in the medical field. I'm sorry to say doctors and nurses view and treat patients differently. And they have openly admitted that when uh, studies were conducted. And I looked at stigmatization in one of my modules and it was really um, I was eye opening. And it's it's heartbreaking because uh you know, if it's happening in the medical field, it's happening in uh, the fitness field. And there is a real cause for overweight and obese people to not feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Rose Donovan with us in the studio today, female health PT. She's also a breathing specialist. Rose is a PT specialising in female health. She's also a master instructor in Oxygen Advantage. So we can take any questions you might have about mouth versus nose breathing. We had a few questions on snoring, but we are talking about obesity in particular today. As Rose said, you know, working with a lot of overweight and people living with obesity over the years. And we've had a question here, which I think is a, absolutely 
right in your wheelhouse. 4001 if you want to get in touch. Saying, hi both, I'm very overweight um, and would like to start some exercise, but I need to be realistic. So no suggestions of couch to 5K or boot camps, please. Just after some suggestions of gentle starts I can make in my own home for now. And that's where it starts, isn't it? It's that desire to, to start moving, Rose. So if someone was to come to you, as this listener has, what do you tend to suggest if someone is looking to get to a healthy weight? We look at the start points of what the current level of activity is. Um, and if it really is low, then you can start with walking. And this is... Uh, Walking is absolutely really incredible for weight loss when you are overweight or you're carrying um, weight that goes into the obese category because you have your own resistance right with you. Um, and that's uh, that's meant in the best way possible in case it's come across as derogatory. But no, 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 not at um, all. Because when I was bigger, I was really strong. <laughs> yeah, you, you, we, we are stronger when we are bigger. That is the, the, the plus of it. Uh, so where the starting point is, what you're currently doing, And what people actually misconstrue in terms of exercise is that it does not need to be that hard and it certainly doesn't need to be that easy. So there's a little middle point and on an RPE scale, which is rate of perceived exertion, you're looking at about a five or a six on a scale of one to ten. And on a real scale where we measure you clinically, it's actually in an aerobic heart rate. So you're not going into anaerobic zones. And that means that you can actually carry out exercise for 10 continuous minutes or up to 30 continuous minutes. That may not sound like very much, but when we get people with low levels of fitness or overweight or obese, it's actually quite difficult to continually exercise for 10 minutes without blowing up or stopping. Even fit people, they they have will have less aerobic capacity and that's where our starting point is and there's so much you can do at home um, and it can be interspersed you do not have to do 30 minutes in one go you can go out for a 10 minute walk you can take the stairs uh, that's something that's not utilised in this country um, you know if you take a couple of flights of stairs a couple of times a day it's absolutely uh, <laughs> will, it will provide incredible change and I'll, I'll send you some um, information on this I'm, I'm <laughs> smiling because we're on the second floor here in the studio I don't even know where the stairs are in this building oh dear <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a notion. Not a notion. Um, so exercise doesn't need to be in the gym. And I think that is a really common misconception. People go, OK, I'm going to start exercising in you know, January. And mm-hmm. that seems to think that you need to be doing a boot camp or burpees five times a week in a, no. in a gym and, and, and paying, you know, qu- quite, quite frankly. And mm-hmm. um, You've said that it's actually not even that productive for weight loss. Why is that, Rose? No, minute for minute, it will not provide the kind of weight loss where continuous movement, um, like I said, if we clinically measure what what heart rate you should fall into and what level of exercise intensity you should be exercising at and then get you moving continuously in that manner. That might be vigorous gardening. It might be vigorous walking. It could be swimming. These are not activities that are in the gym. When you're in the gym, you'll see people standing around a lot more than they're actually moving. Mm -hmm. So minute for minute when measured, it is not as as effective. Um, and it's also you you do not need to go to the gym because it's this is the, the the stopping point. People are not comfortable in the gym. They're not comfortable in the mirrors um, and, and they don't you know, they, they will go to the gym tomorrow. So rather than going to the gym tomorrow, why don't you start today? Um, and not we, we don't have to use weather as an excuse now. It's perfect weather to go outside in the morning or evening and just start moving or find activities like dancing or classes or sports that you can play that are, you know, suitable for your body type. Um, these are all 
perfectly viable options um, hiking at the weekend. So you, it does not need to be gym based. I think also with the 3030 coming up as well, you know, there's going to be loads and loads of free classes, activities mm. happening down on Kite Beach and the fitness villages. And for me, that's been absolutely crucial. You know, I was sporty as a teen, stopped for quite a number of years and mm-hmm. then started to find actually what I did enjoy. And I think, unfortunately, because of certain PE teachers I had at school and mm-hmm. certain experiences I had, I think a lot of people have the same experience. You think about exercise being punishment, mm-hmm. you it, know, rather than a privilege. It is crucial you find something you enjoy. Uh, I think Dubai is one of the best cities if you look on social media and all our gyms saying that you must do this type of exercise and you must do this type of training or else it's not training. You have to find an activity you enjoy and it will stick. If it's not enjoyable, it's not going to stick. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to hear you say, Helen, that you did do exercise when you were younger and you've come back to it now that you're older. If you have kids involved in sports and you have teenagers involved in activity, it has been shown uh, over longitudinal studies that they will come back to exercise when they are older. So when we're talking about overweight and obesity, um, I would really like to focus on prevention rather than just treatment of the obese population because this is a problem that's not going to get any better. So our kids and our teenagers are the ones that need the environmental change and the change in policies around how we, you know, what kind of time they have to exercise. Yeah, absolutely. But I think a lot of it can also be to do with modelling behaviour as parents, mm-hmm. you know, being being active as a family. And again, that doesn't mean going to the gym as a family of four, but, you know, <laughs> going, you know, going hiking, walking on the beach, having a swim, because as you say, this problem is not going to get any better. The latest report from the World Obesity Federation, it was released in March, predicts that 51% of the world's population is mm-hmm. going to be impacted by overweight or obesity by 2035. And I know here in the UAE, it's a really, really pertinent problem. Hence, some of these really big initiatives like the 30 by mm-hmm. 30, which are starting very soon. Indeed, as I said, Rose is something of an expert, a master instructor in the oxygen advantage. We are going to be talking about disordered sleeping and breathing relating to being overweight, being obese. <laughs> Joining us this afternoon to talk all things health, Rose O'Donovan. She's a female health PT. She's an Oxygen Advantage Master Instructor with a special interest in obesity. You were doing a lot of work and research in this area, Rose, after working as a trainer for decades. And as I said, a real expert when it comes to all things breath. We've talked about the importance of nose over mouth breathing on the show before. Um, And I wanted to ask you, is there a link between disordered breathing and obesity? Yes, Um Every overweight and obese client, um, anecdotally, I will say that I have trained and treated um, all present with disordered breathing. And it's quite simple when we're having to carry extra body weight, we're under more pressure and we will possibly have mouth breathing um, and we'll definitely have over breathing. Heart rate increases every time we breathe in. So we need to slow down breathing. And it's one thing that's not really looked in, in, uh, at clinically when uh, obese people go for treatment, whether it's medication or surgery, is the extra things that we look in the whole systems approach of holistic health, um, correcting breathing patterns, which can mean the difference of making a good decision or a bad decision around food or exercise. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just about to say, if you, mm. there's so many kind of things to unpack here, but I'm just trying to, to think it out loud. If you are snoring, if you have sleep apnea, you're not going to be having 
quality restful sleep. Mm -hmm. And then the next morning, I would imagine you're probably more likely to be reaching for those sugary snacks to give you the energy. And so Mm -hmm. the cycle continues. Yeah. And you're exhausted because your brain, especially the brain stem and the cerebellum are not getting enough oxygen. And we're not, you know, we're not sure which is coming first, the sleep apnea. You mentioned something about blood pressure. Yes, Um, I had a question here saying, is there any relation between snoring and blood pressure? Please don't say my name. No problem. There are um, many, many associations. So they are heavily associated with each other. I would go the route of correcting the sleep apnea first. So get a sleep test. Um, and then look at the breathing and the blood pressure should regulate better then and hopefully you're not on, uh, that you you won't need medication for that, but they are related. And Rose, what can happen if you leave sleep apnea untreated? Um, You have a very poor quality of life um, and and that should be enough to say, okay, we're not going to leave it untreated. So over time, you get more and more uh, exhausted and when we say exhaustion, cognition is affected um, so you will have side effects like weight gain um, and poor quality of life decision making, uh, not being able to have energy for uh, the brain, uh, especially because that's what uh, gets uh, rejuvenated when we rest at night time. So in general, everything is, is affected, but major, you, you're living with fatigue and exhaustion on a, on a long term scale. And there may be there will be other long term health problems mm. in relation to the airways. Um, I don't want to go as far as to say, you know, heart disease and all of these no, other no, but, things. But, yeah. but it, there has been studies that show mm-hmm. that, you know, it can be life shortening. For Definitely life shortening. Um, to the text line we go, we're going to squeeze in a couple of messages. Um, Jen is saying, my husband snores like a train. Uh, we sleep in separate rooms. He won't do anything about his snoring other than wearing a nasal strip if we go on holiday and share a room, which is completely ineffective. What investigations should I be suggesting? He needs to get it checked whether that is nasal snoring or mouth snoring and uh, the breathing issue. There could be a tongue issue. I know we've had Dr. Tina, the airway dentist on, on air here before, but he definitely needs to get this checked. Um, I would also look at his exercise. Does he uh, exercise with his mouth open? Um, and the two types of snoring, they present differently and they have uh, different impacts. They, one can be corrected. One may need clinical help to be corrected. I would suggest strongly that uh, he does get this looked at because it's not normal. It's not normal to snore and it's not normal to sleep with your mouth open. Mm-hmm. Ziad, I knew we were going to get a message about mouth taping as soon as I say the words <laughs> Rose Donovan. Um, Ziad says, I'm thinking of trying mouth tape for mostly snoring, but also hate the dry mouth that comes with mouth breathing at night. Would welcome Rose's tips for beginners. We've got a minute left, Rose Donovan. Are you able to tell us? For beginners, uh, make sure that you ha- you can practice first, that you're comfortable with the tape, myotape or micropore three millimeter tape. Uh, I would just suggest that you l- just check your swallowing pattern first to make sure that you are able to tape um, or contact me directly and I'll give you a quick tutorial or send you links. Um, mouth taping for beginners is just use one of the tapes recommended on the market and uh Try it and see how you feel. Try it, you might like it. Um, Rose, your Instagram is a fantastic resource. Um, What is the best place to find you in real life and online? In real life, I am available in Joint Space in Alcer Cal Avenue on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And online, you can get me on Instagram, Rose B. O'Donovan, or you can uh, get me at hello at roseodonovan.com. Thank you so, so much. Really, really interesting, Rose, and we'll speak to you very soon indeed. Thank you for having me.
Show me someone without an ego and I'll show you a loser. Having a healthier ego or a high opinion of yourself is a real positive in life. So says Donald Trump. So is ego good or bad? What even is an ego? We're bringing in the expert today. We've got the fantastic Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic, to answer this and your questions as well on 4001. Before we bring Dr. T in, this is Dr. Wayne Dyer. Uh, he was an American self-help author and a motivational speaker. And he used to say there is no need for an ego and we need to stop defending it. You know what the idea of the ego is? It says, I am what I have. I am what I do. I'm separate from everybody else, and I'm separate from God. And that's what we're raised on and what we're trained on. We have it because it works. It works at, get, at getting ourselves believing that we're better than other people instead of just allowing ourselves to be free. I think it's uh, the, the ego is not worth defending. That's Dr. Wayne Dyer's take. On the other hand, Tim Knight, founder of Focus 3, which is a company that teaches leadership skills, says we need an ego, but there is a difference between a bad one and the good, or as he calls it, a big ego versus a strong ego. A big ego is arrogant. A strong ego is confident. Secondly, a, a big ego is self-oriented. A strong ego is team-oriented. A big ego wants to control and to command. A strong ego wants to serve and support. A strong ego acknowledges, admits its mistakes, and seeks to correct them. Big ego does not want to be challenged and actively resists feedback. A strong ego wants to be challenged and actively seeks feedback. Big ego focuses on image and reputation. Strong ego focuses on integrity and character. Big ego needs to be right. Strong ego wants to be effective. And maybe the most important, big ego, very poor listener. Strong ego, very good listener. Food for thought there from Tim Knight, the founder of Focus 3. Dr. Thryer joining us live on the line to help us decode some of these terms and answer our questions too. Dr. Thryer, how are you today? I'm well. How are you, Helen? I'm really well. Really, really well. Um, had a good sleep last night. I've got big plans to watch Junk TV and go to bed at 10 o'clock again tonight. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> It sounds nice. I know, right? I started watching that Beckham documentary, which is a topic for another day on infidelity. Um, but it was just a kind of little brain break that I needed. Um, however, the brain break that I, I'm not getting is the concept of ego. I mm -hmm. still don't f fully feel like I understand it. So would you mind explaining the concepts of ego and the id in simple terms? For me, for, <laughs> please, um, for me and everyone listening today, you know, those of us who might not be familiar with these psychological terms. Of course. So essentially, the ego is talked about in two different forms. So there's the Freudian perspective, and then there's the general perspective, which the gentleman that was previously on the, the snippet that you put in was talking about. So I'm going to talk about it from the Freudian perspective first, and then the general perspective. So the Freudian perspective is actually in his psychoanalytic theory. He talked about the ego as one of three major components of the human psyche or our personality. And so essentially what he had said is that we have three parts of our personality, the id, the ego, and the superego. Now, the id is governed by what we call the pleasure principle, which is everything that you can think of when you say things like, I want this and I want this to be done. It's mm -hmm. very childlike, if you will. And this is, it exists in all of us, whereas the superego is governed by what he called the, mor the moral principle, which is basically 
the shoulds and the shouldn'ts. Like, I have to do this, I have to do that. And this is really governed by, you know, society, our social structure, culture, religion, all sorts of stuff. So you can hear it's kind of like a parent voice that's within us. Mm -hmm. And then the ego is actually um, governed by the reality principle. And when it's based on the reality principle, it tries to seek to satisfy the desires of the id that's also socially unacceptable and realistic from the superego side. So the ego actually plays a really important role in mediating between the conflicting demands of the id and the superego. So it actually helps us to maintain the psychological balance and functionality in society. So it really has an adaptive function um, for our day-to-day existence. Mm -hmm. And this is from the Freudian perspective of the ego. Which suggests there is a maladaptive function as well, which I'm sure we're going to come to. So that's the Freudian definition mm-hmm. of such, which pro- is probably not what the majority of people with us today will be thinking about when we talk about right. what is ego. So how right. has it become common vernacular and what are some of the psychological associations that we might be hearing? Well, unfortunately, the word ego has then been used in a more general context to, to refer to a person's sense of self or self-identity. And this has to do with their self-awareness, the self-esteem, the self-concept. So the ego, in the general sense, is kind of central to how people view themselves and their role in the world. So it includes like their beliefs, their values, their self-perceptions. It also influences their self-esteem and, and it influences how they feel about themselves and their self-worth. And it really shapes our self-concept, which is the way that we define who we are based on these attributes, these roles, the relationships that we have. So it, it does support our autonomy, our independence, uh, our decision-making, our emotional regulation, our social interactions, even conflict resolu- resolution. So from the general perspective, that's really what we discuss when we talk about ego. Now, sometimes ego and pride mm. are kind of interchangeably used, which is, which is um, incorrect because ego maybe in its extreme form is considered pride. Um, but uh, ego as a general perspective and in, in a general context, it's just our sense of self and our sense of self-identity. Dr. Thry with us today. Joining us live on the line from the Human Relations Institute in clinic, Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist, and we're talking ego. So, Dr. T, I'm curious are there any significant factors or experiences that can shape the development of the ego? And what about between the genders as well? Because I think men can get a bit of a bad rap when it comes to their so-called delicate male ego. What do we need to know about the development? Well, in terms of development, uh, when we, definitely we have to go back to your childhood. So essentially, when we talk about how we develop ego, we also develop, uh, we also talk about how we defend our ego, right? So the defense mechanisms that we use are basically a way to protect ourselves from any kind of anxiety or distress from being affected as in like feeling like less than, right? Mm. And so we use things like repression, denial, rationalization, intellectualization, compartmentalization. So we use so many different defense mechanisms as a way to protect our ego. But when we're children, we learn these defense mechanisms from our family members and mainly from our parents. So the more we recognize that a, that a parent, for instance, isn't willing to admit that they're wrong, isn't willing to say that they're sorry, isn't willing to kind of like takes on a very authoritative role of, you know, I know best just because I know, you know, that kind of a, yeah. a perspective or authoritarian, sorry, um, then, then that really affects the child's uh, ego development as well. And 
I know that, you know, we would like to say that men's ego is actually bigger than women's ego, but the idea that they have bigger egos is a stereotype and it's not actually supported by any kind of scientific evidence. So ego in the sense of self-esteem and self-identity or self-importance is influenced by, you know, social cultural influences, personal experiences, um, our personality traits. But in essence, both women and men um, have the same level of ego, but Socially, we actually promote that men have a higher self-esteem and a stronger sense of self-importance, whereas we don't necessarily do that for women. We promote humility. We promote um, kind of not belittling, but definitely minimizing our own achievements. Yes, modesty in comparison Mm. to, so you might see it more in men because that's how they're socialized. They're socialized to kind of talk about their achievements and all the things that they're proud of and so on and so forth. Whereas for women, it's about about being humble. It's about being modest. Don't talk about your achievements and so on and so forth. Interesting. Dr. Thoreau, I've had a number of messages on this. We've had one asking about dealing with with rumination. We've had one about... I'm going for a job and is it just the ego talking? But I won't before, we're going to come to this after half past, but I want to ask you this one um, message saying big ego versus strong ego. How can I let go of my need to always be right? Mm. (laughs) It's a very good question because in essence, we all feel that twinge when we're, when we recognize that we're not right about something. However, it requires practice and a a self of a sense of awareness as to why is it so important for us to be right? What does it say about me if I'm not right? And this is a very important question to ask yourself whenever you're experiencing that sense of defensiveness, because whenever we are defensive, we are coming from a place of ego. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for us to be aware of when we're using it, how we're using it, and what does it say about us if we're not protecting ourselves? I think it's such a sign of maturity as well. And something that's only really kind of clicked with me to be able to say and be okay with saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Um, and something we're really trying hard to teach the children is sometimes it's more important to be nice than it is to be right, mm-hmm. um, which is a really, really tough thing to get your head around. Because, you know, as humans, we all think we're right all the time. We all think we've got a great sense of humor. We all think we've got great taste. You know, there is these yeah. kind of like immovable truths in our lives that... Yeah, it, it, it takes a bit of a bit of self-awareness. Really, really interesting question. Thank you for that. Um, right, I'm going to see if I can squeeze in one question before the headlines. Um, this is an anonymous message um, saying, a promotion's come up at work. My line manager appears to be encouraging me to apply. It would mean less time with the kids, would add stress, and the task that involves aren't that exciting. I don't want to apply, but my insecure little ego is tormenting me. If I'm honest with myself, I want people to know I'm good enough to be promoted. And if I don't apply, then people might think I was rejected. How do I rid myself of the unnecessary egotistical thoughts and just know that I will... I'm doing what makes me and my family happy. Well, the first thing I would say is don't try to fight against your ego. So recognize that it's okay that we have ego and it's okay that we are trying to contain and manage it. But what you want to do is not let the the ego dictate how you live your life. And so if you truly within yourself value the idea of spending time with family, then that needs to be what you focus on. That needs to be where you come from, from a, from a sense of like really giving your, your essence uh, th- and the truth that you experience in your life, the importance that you, that 
that you're giving it. So don't really hate on your ego. It's actually a good thing. But at the same time, try to embrace the fact that it's okay that if people that people don't know as long as you know. Good advice as ever, Dr. Thryer. That's why you're with us this afternoon. Having a deep dive into the ego today with Dr. Thuraya, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Um, I've had a number of messages on this, Thuraya, and I think it's because it's, I think it's, it's a complicated one. It really is, but because we, we use the, that word ego so easily. And I wondered, is there such thing as having a healthy ego? How, how would you define that as a psychologist? Well, definitely a healthy ego is one that that maintains some form of balance between not just the id and the superego, but also in terms of how you view yourself. So if you tend to view yourself better than other people or, or worse than other people, then you have an unhealthy ego. But if your ego is more focused on your value system... So there's something called the self-determination theory, which is really how it's kind of like we focus on what we value so that we can um, guide our own behavior and we can be proud of how we behave based on what we value when we see that there's consistency there. But an unhealthy ego is when we're always kind of comparing ourselves to other people, which is equally natural that we do that, but it's just, it builds up an unhealthy ego because then we get quite defensive if somebody's better than us, or mm-hmm. we feel a sense of guilt if somebody's worse than us, you know? So, so the healthy ego is finding that balance. How, how, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a tough one. Yeah. How like flexible is it? How changeable is it? If you start to recognize that your ego is a problem, can you actually change your behaviors and, and ultimately have a healthy ego? Oh, for sure. You definitely can. I mean, the, the ego work is is actually, it's, it's, it's like a hard pill to swallow, Helen. You know, it's kind of like admitting to yourself that you're not perfect, that you're not the best at everything, that there is always going to be somebody that's better off than you and somebody that's worse off than you. And just recognizing that y- you... I don't have to look so much as to what everybody else wants from you, but what you want from yourself Mm. and coming to terms with the fact that you're not always going to please everybody and you're also not going to please yourself all the time. It's just a matter of recognizing that where you are needs to match what you value rather than match everybody else's expectations of you. Interesting. All right, Dr. T, we've had, as I said, a number of messages on this. We're going to try and get through as many as we can. Lama's been in touch saying, I've been watching a lot of videos on YouTube regarding spirituality. And one thing I'm hearing a lot is that when it comes to self-forgiveness, it's about ego. They talk about if you continue to punish yourself for past mistakes, then it's a form of ego. I see it as having accountability for, for your actions, but I do understand that constantly beating yourself about something you did in the past isn't productive. But how does that relate to having an ego? Hmm. So from a Freudian perspective, that's more superego. So that's more the parent that's kind of reprimanding you for not doing the right thing all the time. And so then what that means is that you don't actually have a healthy ego, which is that balance, right? But from a more general perspective, when you're being really hard on yourself, and this is something that my clients really hate me for saying, but I tell people, if you are constantly hard on yourself, but you won't be hard on other people for the same reason, you're basically setting yourself at a higher standard than others, which means technically, indirectly, you're saying you're better than other people, which is a really hard pill to swallow. Nobody likes that pill. So what they what they end up realizing is that I need to actually change this. So this is something that they work on time and time again, um, and they really do their best at really functioning beyond 
trying to defend the anxiety or the or the difficulty and not being perfect. And that's kind of why we are so mean to ourselves is because we tend to, you know, say, oh, I need to be perfect or I have to do better and I have to do more, where that's not actually the case. We can appreciate where we are while still striving for better. And that doesn't necessarily have to come with reprimand and criticism and judgment. Which brings me to this message that's come in on 4001. Um, no name, saying, does Dr. T have any tips on how to deal with rumination? I had a negative incident at work this week and I've done nothing but play it over and over in my mind. I think it might be to do with my inability to have people to dislike me or maybe my ego is playing a part. Either way, it's eating into my family time. It's affecting my mental health. If you have any tips on how to deal with it, I'd be very, very grateful. So one of the things I usually talk about when I say uh, dealing with rumination is is really looking at what is it that, that is bothering you so much, right? And so in this case, it could be that I don't like people not liking me. But then at that point, what does what are you saying to yourself? If somebody doesn't like you, are you saying to yourself that you're unlovable? Are you being really hard on yourself and saying that I'm unworthy of love? And if that's the case, then there's actually deeper work that needs to be done. But if you're looking at it from a perspective of like, I'm ruminating because I actually did something wrong and I'm taking accountability and I'm trying to learn from this, that's something different. So we we want to balance this recognition of, am I doing it because it's kind of triggering an abandonment wound, a fear of rejection, then you kind of really need to do a lot more deeper work there. Or is it coming from a place of, you know, I just, or it could come up from a place of ego, like I just don't want anybody to think negatively mm-hmm. of me. And you're trying to get, have people think of you in a specific way, which never really works out because everybody thinks of people in the way that they kind of have their own lens of the world, right? And so um, my my tips would be figure out where you where this is coming from, figuring, figure out why is this so important for you? What is the difficulty that you're, what is the statement that's so difficult for you to kind of accept? And then work on, you know, just healing yourself as in like provide yourself with some self-care, be kind to yourself, be compassionate, be empathetic, and try to work through that without being so hard on yourself. I think what I'm kind of learning from this is, you know, the problems with ego arise when it does affect things like your decision making and your attitude, you know, when it turns you into a victim or an underdog or make you feel superior to justify your behavior. Mm -hmm. So it's a big, big self-awareness piece. But I want to finish with one quick question about ego and other people. Um, No Name says, any tips for dealing with an egomaniac boss? Micromanaging, subtle put downs, passive aggressive, disempowering, takes credit for all successes, but disowns any failures. Ultimately, if I'm not good enough, he'll get rid of me or I may leave. As in the long term, I can't work with someone like him. In the meantime, how do I survive or even thrive keeping him sweet? I feel like nothing I do is right. Or if it is, he'll take credit for it. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's a, I think that's a show in of itself, to be Isn't honest. It? There's so much there. But I would, I would say really quickly, just to make sure that you practice self-care. If you've tried everything possible between boundaries, between speaking to them, between having effective communication, maybe even speaking to HR and nothing seems to be working, just make sure that you take care of yourself because that situation is extremely difficult and can weigh you down and affect the rest of your life. And not taking it personally, I mm-hmm. think is probably really, really key. It's, it sounds like it's it's a him problem, not a you problem. Um, and there's a huge amount of power and liberation in, in, in recognising that. Dr. Thrai, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Helen. Really appreciate it. I know you're really excited about what we're going to be talking about next week. Could we give people some homework? Would that be okay? Because you're going to give me, you've already given me and Poonam some homework ahead of this topic. Go on. Yes. 
So um, we're going to be talking about the shadow self. So I would um, ask people to write down the things that trigger them, which are, is basically not in terms of behavior, but in terms of personality traits. So quick example, if, some, if, if you notice that somebody is like being rude to a waiter or barista, yes. that is the behavior, but the personality trait might be either arrogance, entitlement, mm. selfishness, rudeness, whatever it is, but you have to figure that out for yourself. Interesting. So me hating it when people are late, for example. Would... Right. But that's the behavior. behavior. You have to yeah. focus on the personality trait. Yeah. Okay. So everyone, this is what we're going to be talking about next week. Shadow work and recognizing some triggers in personality traits. So feel free. It's going to be, it's going to be an open space for a bit of a rant and why recognizing this in others and ourselves is so, so important. Dr. Thraya, absolute pleasure as ever. And we'll talk to you next week. I've got some Maroon 5 for you now on Dubai I 103.8. Don't forget, we do have the Psychology Hour every single Tuesday afternoon. There's any topics, any um, insights that you'd like, let me know on 4001. We'd love to get your take. If there's anything we can have a little deep dive into, anything that's on your mind you're struggling with that we can help with, let me know. This is your platform. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.